Welcome to Threads of Healing, conversations with the wayward and the wise. This is your host, Dr. Ila Manga, coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Threads of Healing is the space for exploring what healing could mean by having deep conversations with wisdom keepers, doctors, artists, storytellers, fact finders and visionaries, we bring awareness to the voices who have answered their call to heal and to discover a new way of living, breathing and being in the world and will inspire you to do the same. Today I have the incredible privilege of talking to a very special woman who for me embodies compassion, wisdom and gentle power. Dr. Gillian Godsell is an academic, a humanitarian and custodian of wisdom who has dedicated her life to serving others, volunteering across the fields of politics, entrepreneurship and education. To this day, Gillian still works tirelessly on the ground, often publicly as a lay preacher in the Anglican Church and bringing hope and wisdom through her social media channels. She's also known as the Tweeting Gogo with her own podcast channel too. But really much of the impact of her work is through the work she does silently and behind the scenes. I personally know of people whose lives have been fundamentally changed through her gentle, steadfast guidance and support. She is a true leader and a healer in every sense of the word. So Dr. Gillian Godsell, tweeting Gogo, welcome to Threads of Healing. How lovely to be in a conversation, which I hope this will be, with somebody like you, Dr. Ela, who heals constantly. Oh, thank you, Gillian. So what does it feel like to be on the other side of the mic? Enormously intimidating, Ela. You have no idea how terrifying you look across this table. <laughs> oh, Gillian. <laughs> so what inspired you to do your podcast? Well, it was an accident. I went, there used to be a community radio station called Radio Today, and they called me in as a guest to talk about something educational, and I didn't really let the interviewer get a word in edgeways, because I feel very strongly about all sorts of things in the education field, mm. and at the end of it, they were waiting for me at the door to the interviewing room, and they said, don't you want to come and work here? And I said, don't be silly, I don't know anything about radio. But luckily, a Dutch NGO had seconded somebody to, I think, various community radio stations in Joburg. So she was there to help me. I wouldn't go on air unless she was sitting on the floor in the interviewing room. And she was there for about six months. And I found I loved it. My program was called Josie Today. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, but I don't understand, what do you want me to do? They said, show us the city through your eyes. And I passionately love Johannesburg and the chance to bring in people who were doing all sorts of things. I broadened it to interesting people who sometimes lived in Joburg. Yeah. So I got to interview Bernie Fanneroff, Dr. Bernie Fanneroff, at the very early stages of the Karoo Array Telescope, mm -hmm. which is now, of course, very big because we won the world bid for that. And... It was fabulous talking to him 
And hearing about the detail and the care and the concern, I'm always interested in the values that underpin whatever it is that you're doing. Mm. And they were concerned. They wanted the kids in the local Carnarvon High School. They said, look, they're actually probably not going to become astrophysicists, but certainly they can learn to service and repair these enormous telescopes. But then they have to have good maths and science in high school. So they found a retired engineer, appointed him to teach maths and science at Carnarvon High School. And I really appreciated the concern that went way beyond the science. Mm. And then I was able to interview the vice-chancellor of the Sol Plaiki University at Kimberley. And he said, oh, yes, that's all very well. They're producing all this data, but it's going to be just like the gold. It will be produced here and exploited overseas. So he said, I have an undergraduate course, the only undergraduate course in Africa in big data. He said, by the time this data from the Karoo Array Telescope comes online, my students will all have got their PhDs overseas and they'll be right here analyzing it. And that is the kind of value thread that intrigues me. So I, I, I've done the thing on Radio Today. Then, then Radio Today, sadly, didn't quite come to an end, but they got rid of all their volunteers. And I missed it. And my children kept nagging and saying, you must do podcasts. And I was saying, no, I, I I can't, I can't, I can't. Then my husband bought me a really fancy microphone. And then I was kind of obliged because now I had this really fancy microphone and I just had to attach it to my laptop. And that's how the podcast started. I love your sharing of your passion for Joburg. I feel the same way. I just, I really am in love with the city, the passion and the energy and the incredible people that are here. And um, tell, us, tell us more about some of the people that you really, you feel personally inspired by in the city. Well, I've just been on an inner city walking tour with a group called Joburg Places. Yes, I know them. Yes. Mm. And who inspires me at the moment are the people who hung on by hook or by crook. They hung on through lockdown when it wasn't easy. And they did all sorts of things. Joburg places started delivering meals when the restaurant was shut down. Then for a while they weren't allowed to deliver meals either. So they said, we're selling discounted vouchers. Buy a discounted voucher for a walking tour or one of our meals. Gerald wrote a book about Joburg, which he then started to sell. People who made a plan. I have a young niece and nephew in Durban, and they had spent 14 years building up tiny family business with some gondolas on a canal on the Durban beachfront. And 2019 was their peak. They'd done really, really well. And then, of course, it crashed, lockdown. Mm -hmm. And somehow they also, they did a backup buddy thing. They were very active from day one, getting UIF payments for their staff, they also did vouchers ahead of time. And I think two weeks ago, they were allowed to open. And for a lot of businesses, there's nothing left to open. Mm. So the people who have hung on somehow, I have enormous respect for. What do you think that essence is in, these, in people like this? I think it 
differs. For my young niece, she is a very devout Christian, and it's her faith that kept her mm. going. Mm. I think Gerald's passion for the city. I think of my friend Lorraine Sitoli, who is a literary activist. So she runs a book club. She makes sure that there's South African indigenous literature in school libraries in Soweto. She writes reviews on Goodreads. She's a panelist everywhere. So she really is an activist. But then what do you do under lockdown? Well, she started interviewing people on Instagram. And now I think she did more work during lockdown. And she was just determined. Literature is her passion, not in a way that some people who know about books and look at you and say, oh, I don't think you really understood that book you just read. She doesn't want to know more than you. She wants you to read. And she wants you to get your next door neighbor to read. And she wants the children to read. And she was not about to stop that mission. And because she's young enough to manage the technology, she got the technology to partner her in doing this in a totally new way. Mm. But I think the word partnership is so important. Because sometimes it's so easy for our fear and, you know, the need to survive. Of course, we have the need to survive. But sometimes that, that fear can override what we feel passionate about or what we think is possible to do. You know, I read something so interesting recently that said our brains are like Velcro for what's negative yes, Teflon for what's positive. And, of course, we have to register the threats or we won't survive. But if we want to thrive, we have to seek out the good hang on to it for long enough for our wretched, recalcitrant brains to register it. Mm -hmm. And gather our tribe to and, support us. And gather our tribe. Ila, the tribe is so important. Mm -hmm. And isn't the wonderful thing about technology that our tribe can now be far-flung? Absolutely. And even the, the really horrible and sad thing about funerals under COVID, where you can't hug somebody, you can't even be there to share the grief but people around the world can be there because it's a Zoom funeral. Yes. I've seen that just in, in the breathwork space, you know, um, offering workshops uh, in person before COVID and then, you know, seeing the possibility of doing this online and in the process, just connecting with incredible people all over the world. You know, even though I had... Um, trepidation about doing this work online it's just there's something about that human connection that transcends time and space and i think when it's something good Ela, like your breathwork series the word gets out because i go occasionally to a zoom mass offered by an ordained roman catholic woman priest so she is quite unusual, very brave, and of course, right out of the mainstream. But, and I used to go once a month when it was in person. Now it's every week on Zoom. And I've told overseas friends about it. And they can attend. And they say, so my good friend who is a Quaker, now occasionally attends from her little village called Saffron Walden, which is just below Cambridge, attends a Zoom mass run by a Roman Catholic ordained woman priest. Oh, isn't that incredible? So, Gillian, you know, one thing that really strikes me about you is your deep anchoring to a sense of spirituality. 
you know, it feels that it's this connection that supports your ability to see what is good. It supports your your perspective. Is this something that has innately always been with you, this connection? Uh, you, you know, tell us about your relationship with your spirituality. Well, I started off life as a very conventional Anglican. I have very happy memories of walking to church with my mother and my grandmother. And, and that was my foundation stone. And my mother was very ill. She developed ankylosing spondylitis when she was 19. She was in a lot of pain all her life, and her faith was unwavering. And I thought, wow, a faith that can shine through this kind of setback is worth something. So I really valued that. I then married a Methodist whose view of Anglicans is that they're just Methodists who can't sing. Um, I, I, I managed to change that view because it is absolutely true of a lot of, let me not generalize, a lot of the white suburban churches. But if you go to a service in St. Mary's Cathedral, when all of the Diocese of Johannesburg is there and you have at least three competing choirs sitting in the pews, never mind up where the choirs are supposed to be, yeah, then Anglicans can sing. And then he, he had to change his view. But when we got married, we decided we needed to find a church that wasn't his church or my church. And we went to a very interesting church called St. Anthony's in Frederdorp. And it was ministered to by a slightly renegade Presbyterian called Rob Robertson. And he was totally, he lived in a house in Mayfair, he and his family, they were totally involved in the Save Pageview campaign. It was interdenominational. It was multiracial. It was a really wonderful worshipping experience. And you can't mention Rob without his wife, Geert, who taught maths at Immaculata High in Soweto and came out on the salary because Rob believed that he should not take a stipend higher than the most junior priest in the Presbyterian church. So he did that, and he'd been an engineer before he was a priest, so he maintained his own car, and he, he really lived what he preached. So one day someone came to church, and he didn't have his pass on him, and the police picked him up and put him in a police van. Rob's response was to lie down in front of the police van so that it couldn't drive away. Gert grabbed a member of the family of this man, leapt into her car, drove to Soweto, and fetched the pass. So they, they complemented one another beautifully. He was a prophet. She was perhaps a saint. And then St. Anthony's closed. Actually, we left St. Anthony's earlier because Rob pushed people out. He said, okay, you've been here long enough. Now take what you've learned to another church mm. and, and teach it there. So my two elder children were baptized at St. Anthony's and the youngest at St. Paul's in Parkhurst. And we moved between St. Martin's in the Felt and St. Paul's Parkhurst and then found a home in St. Paul's. There's a very wonderful, our rector is a feminist and she is a person who cares enormously. She really sees God in every single person, even if they're being really difficult at a council meeting, mm -hmm. she can see God in them. Um, and the rest of us are looking at our watches and, and saying, and I've learned a lot from her. But it's another thing I love about Johannesburg. There is so much spirituality on offer. Mm. 
So I go once a month to the Dutch Reformed Church in Northcliffe, where they have a wonderful contemplative afternoon. And they've been doing it on WhatsApp. I think they are just moving back into the church. I think I'm not ready to move back into the church yet, so I'm going to stick with the WhatsApp. But it, it's a different perspective. There's a wonderful congregation called Mosaic, which is out towards Little Falls, Roemsuch, that part of the world, and they call themselves post-denominational. I think the history, I may be wrong, is that the Reformeerde Kerk burnt down. And instead of rebuilding it, they said, let's make something new. And they have a thriving congregation, and they have a retreat center. And so when you are prepared to look out, and I must say lockdown was wonderful, because there we were stuck at home, and there was this immense wave of teaching coming over the internet mm. that you could plug into. People offering contemplation. There's an illuminated manuscript in the States that they've done in a modern way in the old technique. And there were a series of lectures on that illumination. And just the picture at the beginning of the Psalms, they'd taken voice recordings, you know how you record not words but sounds, mm -hmm. of Buddhists chanting, I think of a Jewish cantor, of something else, and this was just woven into the illustration at the front of the Psalms. Now this breadth of religion I find enormously inspiring. And then the other essential anchor is silence. I go at least once a year on a silent retreat. I switch off my phone. We have meals in silence. And then I come back and I'm refreshed and I can, I can manage whatever happens next. And yes, yet so many of us kind of move away from that deep silence because we are so afraid of that space, what we will discover in that space. It, it's a scary space. The first silent retreat I went on, I didn't know was silent, and I wanted to go home, but it was too late. I just <laughs> booked onto what I thought was a teaching retreat, and I said, you're joking. No, they said, we're not joking. After this meal, we won't speak until three days' time. Um, so again, it was by accident, a very happy accident. I saw a quote recently, I think it was from Thomas Merton, saying... The language of God is silence. Mm. Everything else is God speaking in a second language. Oh, wow. How beautiful is that? Hmm. You mentioned your friend who's a feminist. Mm. Would you consider yourself a feminist? Oh, I don't know. I am not as radical as my children. Um, I'm probably more radical than my mother. That's about the right place to be. You know, I was at university in the early 70s, and it was really important to say women can do all these sorts of things. The year, the three years I was at WITS, we had our first woman SRC president, Jennifer Cunningham, and it had just been men up to then. Imagine that. And then I was the first woman leader of the youth wing of the Progressive Party. Uh, again, it had 
just all been men. And this was at the time when the only public representative of the Progressive Party was in fact Helen Sussman. So I, how did that happen? How, how, how did it happen? Did it feel like a fight to get there? No, 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 it didn't. Uh, it it was a great surprise and and happened almost by accident. This seems to be the story of my life. But that was a very important conference because not only was I elected for a year as as uh, chairperson, was it? I don't even remember the... But I met my husband there. And we disagreed on almost every resolution that came to the floor to be voted on. My recollection is that he won one and I won one and... We can't remember about the third. Uh, so that was very important, that that was where I met Bobby. Mm. And, and in fact, the fact that we were both devout Christians, it was one of the things we had in common. We were both in peripheral constituencies of the Progressive Party because he lived on the bluff, whereas the centre in Durban was... Musgrave and, and those sorts of suburbs. I lived in Orange Grove. I worked in Orange Grove constituency, and the centre was definitely Houghton. So we knew what it was like to be to be in a position. We, we Neither of us had cars, and we would need a lift home, and whoever was kindly offering a lift would say, you live where? So, so we, had, we had that experience in common. And... Um, Building and shaping one another's spirituality, offering one another readings we found. We are in fact going together on a silent retreat in KZN in October. Um, that growth, none of our daughters go to church. Uh, we got them confirmed. This is what, you know, matric driver's license confirmation. Then you've, you've done your duty by your children. Um, but they, they are deeply spiritual. Um, it just isn't inside a church spirituality. Because it doesn't really have to be. No, absolutely not. Uh, the, the daily meditations I read come from Richard Raw, who is a Franciscan uh, who lives in New Mexico. And what I learned from him and learned to love was this absolute inclusiveness, the divine light in every single human being mm -hmm. and there is no door at which you show a passport stamped with your denomination or your religion mm. um, everyone in fact everyone's through the door before they even knock such an interesting journey. I mean, I, if I reflect on my own journey, um, you know, I grew up in a Hindu family. I went to a Catholic school. And so, you know, was taught by nuns and went to mass and loved all the hymns. Um, and at the same time, you know, um, went to the, our local temple. And uh, it was when I was about 18 years old that I became really judgmental of institutionalized religion and kind of really rebelled against that and moved away from any idea of anything that, uh, you know, I perceived to be dogmatic. And um, it was kind of a quite an, a process of individuation or finding my own sense of self. And, you know, I, I see that as an important part of the journey. And it's only in recent years that I have found that sense of um, identity of self even dissolving and expanding and 
embracing the essence of universal principles that can be found in, in all religions and just being so fascinated by the wisdom that is found in in ancient traditions, in, in African wisdom traditions and in the essence of Christianity and Judaism and Kabbalah and Sufism and and even, you know, accepting the deep wisdom that lies in in Hinduism that I for a while kind of rejected because I saw it as, you know, so wrapped up with the ritual and what didn't feel meaningful for me. That makes so much sense. If you can curve back to the institutional religion so that it can feed your roots rather than constraining you. Absolutely. And for me, my Quaker friend gave me language because she talks about the light. She doesn't have a particular label for God. She talks about the light, which I find wonderful. And there was a recent Richard Raw meditation that talks about the pinprick of light within everybody. And if you can just see that, what a blaze of light you see shining out. I think it was again Thomas Merton shining out through the world. And of course you recognize the truths across the religions when it's hard. If it's too easy, then it's a bit tinny. Something. It has to be really hard. Not, I don't know, not necessarily barefoot on broken glass, not that kind of hard, but the people I admire most have the, the disciplines of their religion, have developed their moral muscles mm. and their spiritual perceptions so that they can see God everywhere. In our country where there's so much pain, so much trauma, individually, collectively, Jillian, what do you feel is required for us to heal as a nation? This is a, this is a very hard question, and I might even cry. Um, wow, the pain, the trauma, the generational trauma, and opposing that, the contempt that people seem to feel free to have for, for other people, their, their lives, their pain, their struggles. But I think what we have here is an energy and a will to heal. Hope and joy aren't soap bubbles. There's a writer called Rebecca Solnit who says, hope isn't sitting on the sofa clutching a lottery ticket and hoping for the best. Solnit says hope is the emergency axe with which you break down the door to the future. And that implies that you can't see the future clearly. You're not waving at the future through a window um, as the future sits in a valley filled with birdsong. You can't see light in the future, so you grab your axe and you get up off your sofa and you break down that door so that other people can get through to that good future. There's an Orthodox bishop in London, and now I've forgotten his name, but he said, if it isn't joyful, it isn't Christian. And this implies a great discipline of finding the joy, of digging 
deep of being determined. And it sounds so contradictory. How can joy be determined? But actually, if you are determined to find within yourself and other people the joy, if seeking sources of joy is one of the tasks you lay on yourself every day, then it can be done, and then it's not something ephemeral, then it's not Christmas lights. Eventually, it becomes a part of you. There are lots of translations of the Our Father from the Aramaic, Um, and lots of Aramaics, I believe, that were spoken in those times, so it's which Aramaic and which translation. But there's one that talks about the beauty of the song that renews. And and this is this is what I nail on on my mask to be part of the beauty of the song that renews to engage seriously in the task of renewal. Um, luckily, it's not a literal song because I sang to my children when they were tiny, and as soon as they could formulate whole sentences, they said, "Mommy, please don't." Um, but there is a <laughs> there is a song out there that doesn't have tunes or words. And if we choose to step up and join that that choir, people talk about creation being continuous. The world wasn't made a one-off. And we are invited, if we wish, to be co-creators of a continuously evolving world, which implies a choice as to what sort of a world. And, yeah, my hand is up to be a co-creator of a world that doesn't negate pain. I mean, this is not offering somebody who is in deep pain candy floss, which acknowledges the pain, which accepts it, and which, with that pain, that you have opened your heart to share, walking out to co-create a world with hope and joy. Wow. You know, I heard someone say that we have to be willing for our hearts to be shattered many times through our lives because it just expands it. It supports us to hold even more compassion. And I really feel you embodying that, Julian. There is a quote from the Hebrew scriptures about the bones which were broken rejoice. And and it sounds to me as if that is what, what you're talking about. Uh, and of course, if your main goal is to avoid your heart shattering, um, then your heart has to go into lockdown. Uh, and then that's, that's not a good... Then you have to remain very narrow and forever protecting this heart that it, it shouldn't be shattered or even scratched. And, and then there's a lot that you miss. So a willingness to have our heart shattered and opened, trusting that we are held. There's someone I follow. I th- he's on Instagram, I think maybe Twitter as well. He's called Irvin Says, and his hashtag is willingness is key. And isn't that the truth? Willingness is key. And that's also when, if you believe in a spirit, if you believe in Sophia Holy Wisdom, if you believe in the Holy Spirit, you can say, okay, and this is also very much what the Quakers do. They wait until they're sure 
what the light has told them. And then they act. Then you say, I'm willing, and I may not know for a very long time what I should do next, but I am wholly confident that it will become clear. Yes. I see your investment in joy every morning. When you tweet, the first thing that you see, hello, beautiful, warm sunshine, hello, birds tweeting, and just, you know, seeing the world through your eyes in that moment supports my deeper presence and connection. So thank you for that. And it's been wonderful for me because now the first thing I have to do is I have to go out and see what's out there. Yes. Is it a bird? Is it a full moon? Is it something that's flowering? So that I can... And again, that happened quite by accident, not the first day of lockdown, but the first Monday of lockdown. I said good morning and something, and then I ended it with courage. Yes. And I got such a response to that, I thought, well, I'd better do it tomorrow. And then then I, I haven't stopped because I do get... And it's, it's so interesting, Ela, because it's not... It, it's very basic. It's just, hello world, there you are. And seeing what is. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But it's clearly very meaningful to people. Mm-hmm. So people can find you on Twitter. Where else can people find you? Because I feel like I could sit with you for days just listening to you. I'm, I'm on both Twitter and Instagram at Gillian Godsell. My, there is a hiatus in my podcasts because my editor and uploader is my daughter who's just had a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also lockdown, I've, I've got to figure out how to carry on. But, but tweeting Gogo Catcher Stories is the name of my podcast. And that's where I am. And I must say, I find social media a lovely space. I know it can be vicious, but you can also steer past that. Absolutely. And just find so much warmth and affirmation and people being happy because they graduated. And you can promote people's small businesses that they're doing to, to keep their head afloat in, in lockdown. And in fact, it feels like it's our responsibility to actually invest in joy in that direction and use social media as a platform to do that because, you know, the opposite is just too overwhelming. Yes, it's our choice and we have to be willing. Well, Gillian, thank you so much. I feel so incredibly privileged to have shared the space with you this morning. Thank you, Ila, for inviting me. Uh, The privilege, I think, is all mine. Thank you for listening to Threads of Healing, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ila Manga. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And feel free to leave a review and tell us what you think. If you have found this podcast inspiring and useful, and you know someone who would too, please feel free to pass this along.